All right. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Thanks for coming out and braving the weather this morning. First time you had to knock snow off your car, huh? It's uh, always a, a winter, a new new thing every winter, it seems like. <laughs> you have to get out all the stuff and make sure you get everything cleared off. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. If you want to open your Bibles, Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 2 through 6 and then 15 through 18. For next week, if uh, you like to read ahead, the lesson will be from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Luke 1, 46 through 55. Today we are going to talk about uh, John the Baptist's um, preparing the way for Christ. Uh, we had... Last time I taught Sunday school, we had talked about John the Baptist coming and, uh, and his birth and how it was miraculous and, and all the things that um, happened as far as John the Baptist's birth account and leading up to that and Zechariah and, and, um, and his wife, what happened. Today we're going to deal with John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ and cover a little bit of the prophecy as well that... Is talked about in the Old Testament, referring to John. All four Gospels tell the account of John the Baptist as a forerunner of Jesus. And this is not to be confused with other Johns in the New Testament. Um, this is, John the Baptist isn't the John that wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, John the Baptist had a very specific ministry. The, the Gospels describe him as preaching as coming in the type of the prophet Elijah. Um, when, the, when the Gospels say that, what does it mean? That he came in the way of Elijah, as like the prophet Elijah. Anybody? Okay, possibly. What else? Yeah. He dressed a little bit like Elijah. Yeah, he, he was very much a similar figure, where he spent a lot of time out in the wilderness. Um, the, the, this dress that he... Uh, kept as far as things that he wore as very rough and rugged type of individual. And so they, they equate John the Baptist as a, a type of Elijah uh, in New Testament times. John came as the last prophet of Israel, John the Baptist. And as such, his task was to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's from Luke 1.17. John spent his years in the wilderness, and people would come out and hear him speak. He must have been a very passionate preacher for people to, to leave the cities and to, and to come out into the wilderness and see this guy that's kind of wild-looking and eating locusts and honey. It almost seems like a... Uh, Novelty, almost, you know, where he's just this this guy that's like an attraction, and everybody wants to go and see him and hear him speak because he's just a powerful orator. John's birth is described in Luke one verses fifty seven through sixty six, and then after a brief pause to tell of the birth of Jesus, Luke reintroduces his audience to John, and he does so by setting the context of John's public ministry 
within the, the political and religious context of the day. Uh, Luke mentions a couple of different people. Does anyone see in your Bible there? Who does Luke mention here as far as the leaders that are during this time? Tiberius Caesar. Okay, Tiberius Caesar, and he's, he would be the, the Roman emperor at the time. Who else does it mean? Pontius Pilate, okay. And he, he would be the governor of Judea. And what is Pontius Pilate known for? As the one that crucified. ultimately, yeah, convicted Christ and, and let the Jews crucify Christ. Then he also mentions one other person. What is that? Okay, Herod. And there's a lot of different Herods. This happens to be Herod Antipas the uh, Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. He was kind of like the, the local Jewish leader over that particular area. And then there's two different high priests that are mentioned as well. Luke states that the, the account of John the Baptist in today's text occurred in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which would give us the dates about A.D. 28, A.D. 29. That's, that's a pretty good timeline as far as uh, when this happens. Luke's reference to these leaders do more than establish a time frame for the events recorded. And the inclusion of these rulers reminds Luke's intended audience that the Jewish people of his time lived under foreign Roman occupation. And they were waiting for a Savior who would free them from that. And what, what kind of Savior were they expecting? I mean, you've heard this many times before, probably. Okay, an earthly ruler. What? Military a military leader. Yeah, someone who would be able to come in and raise up an army. Someone very, very powerful. Um, they, they might even thought that that the the Messiah could raise the dead and bring an army back from the dead to fight these uh, these this occupation and and uh, drive out the Romans from the Promised Land. They were waiting for a savior that would uh, be that type of leader. John, however, came into this situation preaching a message of a different sort of salvation. So let's pick up in uh, Luke 3, starting in verse 2. We're going to start at the second part of that verse after he mentions the, uh, the priests. Where it says, The word of God came to John son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The, this phrase, the word of God, came to him is, uh, is very significant because it, it's the same type of language that's used for Old Testament prophets. Uh, whenever an Old Testament prophet would uh, tell whatever he had been given as far as revelation from the Lord, this, this is always what they would say, that the, the word of the Lord came or Whenever they, maybe it's in first person, they said, the word of the Lord is, and they would say it. And so this is common language to be used for a prophet. Now, most of the time, what was a prophet's job? Because when we think of the word prophet or prophecy, what normally do we think? Okay, future prediction. Okay, but what was the majority of the information prophets gave to the people? What's that? Warnings. Yeah, warnings to repent. Turn back to the way of the Lord. Turn back to the truth. What else? 
How else could we say it? Anybody? There's two, two words in particular I'm looking for. Because there's foretelling the future. And then there's forthtelling, which would just be, this is information God has given that the people need to hear. Or possibly just reiterating previous messages that other prophets had given. And so the majority of prophets did not foretell the future. They would just come to the people and convict them with the word of the Lord and make sure that they turned back to what, how God wanted them to live. And that seems like a common recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. People would stray, they'd turn to idol worship, they'd do things that God wouldn't want them to do, then he sends a prophet. And what's the prophet do? Get back on track. What are you doing? <laughs> and, and oftentimes is hated by the people because he's not afraid to tell the people what God wants them to do and how he wants them to live. We need more prophets today. <laughs> we need more prophets proclaiming the word of the Lord today. We need, that's the, the, uh, a lot of the problems that we have in our, our country would be dealt with, I think, if preachers in general were not afraid to tell the truth and stand up and say what is right and true. The prophets based their proclamations on having received the word of the Lord. Uh, if you read the beginning of a lot of the, the books in Old Testament uh, that are named after prophets, so Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Hosea 1, 1, Micah 1, 1, Haggai 1, 1, they use this type of language. It's the prophet that was proclaiming the word of the Lord. Jesus later proclaimed that John was much more than a prophet. And John brought a message that earlier prophets could not bring. How is his message different than what these other prophets were saying about the Messiah? How's John's message different? Yeah, it's right here. He's coming. And, and we're going to see, we're going to look at this uh, phrase, one whose sandals I'm not even worthy of tying. And so th this person's right here. He's, he's coming. It's close at hand. You need to pay attention. The Messiah is here. As the son of Zechariah, John was in the lineage of Israel's priesthood. Uh, scripture does not indicate that he was a priest uh, like his father. Matthew's gospel adds that John was preaching out in the wilderness of Judea. This is a, a very remote and mountainous area, very rugged area. Um, also, what do we know about these remote areas as people would travel? What do, what do we know about that in, as far as history is concerned? Yeah. Sometimes there were robbers. It was a dangerous trip. Yeah, yeah. Not only was it harsh, and there's very little water, very little food, but then they had to worry about thieves, and as they would go down these roads, he's out in the wilderness by himself. And it's possibly why he dressed like he did. And he lived such a rugged lifestyle. People would look at him and be like, whoa, whoa, I'm not going to get close to that guy. He's wild. And probably served him well that he lived that way because uh, people wouldn't bother him, more than likely. And not to mention he's probably very loud and just an energetic type of individual. So this uh, remote area is found around the Jordan River in the Dead Sea. In Scripture, the wilderness was significant for God's people. 
when we think of wilderness times in the scripture, what does that signify? When God's people spent time in the wilderness, what did it what did it mean? I mean, Jesus spent time in the wilderness. What was that for him? John here spending time in the wilderness. Okay, possibly a, a place to go to to rethink things or or to be get prepared for something greater. Okay, that that's in in all three of those situations with the Old Testament Israelites with Jesus and with John the Baptist, in all three circumstances, they're getting ready for something else major that's going to happen, right? John's in the wilderness. He's preparing the way for the Messiah to come. Jesus, why, when did he go in the wilderness? After his baptism. Right after his baptism, but before his ministry. Okay, he's getting himself prepared. Then the Israelites, when did they spend their time in the wilderness? Yeah, before they went into the promised land. Okay, so this is kind of a neat correlation here that sometimes, even in our own lives, God puts us through wilderness periods, doesn't he? Kind of disciplinary type periods, so maybe, maybe time to refocus. Okay, and so when, when things might seemingly be a little bit rough or a little bit difficult in our lives, scripturally speaking, we can think of it as a time to reflect to refocus, get back on track, put our faith and trust in Him. And maybe He's allowing those types of things to happen so that we can get, in, get ourselves in a better place to be able to serve Him more fully and to, and to rethink the way that, that we are serving Him. So it's a, a time for renewal and a time that um, we can spend or that they could spend and, and these wilderness times when we can spend to uh, focus on the right things. The wilderness also served John the Baptist for his public ministry. Verse 3 says, He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's baptism, um, what type of baptism was it? Okay, it was for repentance. Yes, it was water baptism by immersion. Um, and we learn here that something else happened. Forgiveness of sins. Okay, so this is a foreshadowing of Christian baptism. And we know there's multiple situations in the book of Acts. People had been baptized in John's baptism that had to be rebaptized. Why was that? One, because they hadn't received the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit, but also they weren't baptized into Christ. Yeah. So it's very important, the, the reason why we are baptized. Okay, some, some today, you know, I've, um, nothing was mentioned about this in the, in the lesson, but it's important for us to realize with baptism that the mode is important, why we're doing it is important, and also, it's important what we're baptized into. Okay, some people baptize to get into a church. Some churches require you to be re-baptized to become a member of their congregation. Um, some are baptized simply because it's a good thing to do. They've already been saved, but they're baptized because 
the, the popular phrase is an outward sign of an inward grace or an outward sign of an inward change, implying that the change has already happened. But that's not true. Because in Scripture, we see when we're immersed into Christ, at that point in time, that's when our sins are forgiven. When Paul was baptized, he was told to, to rise, be baptized, wash away your sins. When were his sins forgiven? When was Paul's sins forgiven? Many like to say Paul's sins were forgiven on the road to Damascus when he saw the Savior. When were his sins forgiven, though? When he was baptized. That's when his sins were washed away. That's when you're saved, when your sins are washed away. God deals with the sin problem at baptism. And so it's important for us to, to understand the, the mode of baptism, what we're being baptized for, what we're being baptized into, and what we are being baptized in order to receive, the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. And so even those who were baptized with John's baptism had to be rebaptized later on. It may seem a little bit, why, why send John to do this type of baptizing and then make people get rebaptized later on into Christ? What's the purpose for John's ministry? Why did, why did he do this? Yeah, people were already used to this idea that they needed to be immersed. And not only immersed, but immersed for the forgiveness of sins. And this wasn't a new thing to use water for washing and for cleansing purposes. I mean, how, how was water used even in Old Testament times under the Old Covenant? Thinking about in, what happened in the tabernacle, in the temple, what did they do? Yeah, they had to be ceremonially clean uh, before the priest would go into the, the tabernacle. They had to go through a period, all these different washings. Uh, they had to uh, use the laver that was out in the courtyard to wash you know, before and after they would, use, they would sacrifice. And uh, there's a lot of, of typology, I guess, or, or correlation between the ceremonial washings that happen in the Old Testament and this baptism that happens under the new covenant. But John was, his, uh, his preparing the way of the Lord was just get people used to, this is how things are going to be. These are the types of things that are going to be taught. These are the types of things that are going to be required. And uh, wanting to get the people used to this, uh, you need to repent. You need to deal with the sin in your life. You need to turn to the Lord. You need to have your sins forgiven. And then this is how it's going to happen. So this act of repentance required that people acknowledge their sin, that they turn back to God. Showing repentance is one of the, the first steps that a person can make toward receiving God's forgiveness and salvation. Uh, without repentance, without belief, without confessing that Christ is Lord, does baptism do anything for you? What are you doing when you get up into the baptistry if you don't understand what you're being baptized into and what you're being baptized for and what you're being baptized to receive? What do you do? Yeah, you might as well just put on your swimming suit and go in the pool. Yeah, you're just getting a bath. So it's, it's very important what that, when, when, you, when an act is performed and, and you submit to the act of immersion that you understand what is going on and why you're doing it. Otherwise, it really doesn't mean anything. 
Showing repentance, again, is that first step, which is why um, John preached repentance. Uh, and uh, his baptism was also, like we said, for the forgiveness of sins. Calling sinful humans to repentance was a central part of Christ's, earth, earth, Christ's earthly ministry as well. Uh, so something that Jesus was going to repeat over and over. And John was getting the people ready for that. Verse 4 says, As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. So here Luke directly quotes the words of the prophet Isaiah. And this is very significant because Isaiah has quite a few prophecies throughout his book that point directly to the Messiah. And about how many years before Jesus did Isaiah live? Yeah, around 700 years before. That just is mind-boggling, how God can work that out and be so specific with these, these prophecies that he, He's not only prophesying about the coming Messiah, but He's prophesying here about the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And uh, so John, John the Baptist also was prophesied about in the Old Testament. These words of the prophet Isaiah show that John's message fulfilled the Old Testament prophets. A close word-by-word comparison between Isaiah chapter 40, which is where this is found, Isaiah 43 through 5, and this, this verse, Luke 3, 4, will show the differences between the two texts. And there is a reason for that. It's because Luke is quoting from the Septuagint. And, and what is that? Anyone know what that is? Yes, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So Luke's using the Septuagint to quote Isaiah, which is just slightly different in the wording from the original Hebrew, which is why the, the translations are just slightly different in how they say it. The John was like one calling in the wilderness, preaching a message of repentance, forgiveness, and baptism. He proclaimed a message of hope to prepare the people to repent and accept God's redemptive work through Christ. Verse 5 says, Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways shall be smooth. So all four gospel accounts quote sections of Isaiah chapter 40 to describe John's ministry. The other gospel accounts uh, do not include, though, material from Isaiah 40, verses 4 through 5, which Luke does include. He uh, puts in this metaphor of the land being filled in and made low, and the crooked paths made straight. This uh, idea of the land being filled in and low, what could that be a, an image of? The land's being filled in and made low. They would um, try to make everything nice and smooth for him. To okay. To them. Yeah, yeah, that's possibly that's one possible uh, way to look at it. That they would clear the path and make it make it nice and smooth for the king to come in. What else? Like 
Okay, yeah, very good. Yeah, that's another possibility that the, the mountains bow down to him, being the king of kings, the lord of lords, the creator of all things is coming. And so they're, they're making themselves low. Yeah, what else? Okay. Okay, someone's being buried and, okay, very good. Yeah. Could it be that all people will be made on the same playing field? Okay, that's probably the, the, the best possibility given the context. Because what was John's, what was his, his preaching about? Again, repentance. Now, that idea of repentance, we don't preach enough about repentance today. But repentance carries with it a lot of, uh, a lot of weight. It's a lot more than just being, feeling sorry, isn't it? What's the biblical idea of repentance? Okay, a change of heart, which leads to, usually a change, hopefully, a change of action, which will lead to, ultimately, a change of mind, Right? Okay, so you, you change the way you, you, you uh, feel about things, the way that you act. You, know, you purposely do those, those things that you know are right and true, even when it may not feel right to do them. Ultimately, you're retraining your mind. That's what we read in Scripture, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And repentance helps us to do that. Turning our, our way away from the things that we want to do turning toward what God wants us to do and how He wants us to live. And so because John's message was about repentance, this is probably a reference to the, the humbling nature of repentance, how He was going to call everyone, no matter who you are, whether you're the king, whether you're the, the tetrarch, whether you're the local governor, whether you're the person that's washing someone else's feet as a servant, you're going to be made low. The children of God, those people who express repentance for sin, will have their crooked ways made straight. Turn over Philippians chapter 2. We'll get somebody to read this for us. Philippians 2 verse 15. Philippians 2 verse 15. Okay, go ahead. Right, so how can we relate this passage from Paul to what's being said here? That their paths, their crooked paths will be made straight. That's a, how can we correlate this? Turning away from their, their sinful ways. Okay. All right, when we turn away from our sinful ways, we turn to a path of righteousness, we, we, we start living... Uh, what's referred to here is a blameless life, okay, where someone can't point to us and point out those, those crooked ways, those perverse things. Children of God live as people that are without fault amongst a crooked and perverse generation, it says. And today, we certainly have a, a crooked and perverse generation, don't we? So even more so in our, in our day and age, the worse things get, the more perverse things get, we need to shine as stars, even brighter. We need to be seen as even more blameless 
We need to be more concerned with making our crooked paths straight. So John was wanting the people to do the same thing in his day and age. When I lived overseas, springtime was pothole season. We know about that here, don't we? (laughs) After months of winter freezes, the giant potholes would appear in the city streets. As temperatures warmed and the ice melted, the potholes grew and posed a danger to the vehicles and the driver. The local government did not prioritize road maintenance. Once in a while, citizens would take issues into their own hands, fix the ever-deepening chasms, and they would sometimes gather large tree branches and place them in the potholes. The branches filled in the craters and it warned the unaware drivers regarding the danger to their vehicles. Maybe something we could do around here. The fix was temporary, but it did protect the drivers until the city could provide a more permanent fix. That's, there's the problem. <laughs> the city won't come and make a permanent fix. But God's salvation is a permanent fix for humanity. When people accept God's salvation, the crooked and the rough ways of sinful humanity will be made straight and smooth. God doesn't offer a temporary fix for the sin in our lives. He offers a permanent fix. But who's it up to 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 keep it that way? To us. Yeah. He's done his part. He's fully in. He's fully committed to making the path straight and smooth for us. And we have to make those permanent fixes, not just temporary ones. Verse 6 says, And all people will see God's salvation. Luke here passes over the mention of the glory of the Lord found in Isaiah 40, verse 5. And instead, he says, uh, he interprets it as God's glory as God's salvation, which is also supported by the Greek version of Isaiah's text. All people describes the reach of God's salvation, that all people from all the earth would someday experience the ability to have salvation in Christ that God's salvation will be proclaimed throughout the world, though not all people will accept it. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. Even though salvation has been preached all over the world, salvation through Christ, there are still many who will not accept it. And Jesus warned us of this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. Someone want to read that? Okay, go ahead. Okay, so another more path imagery here, isn't it? Narrow is the way that leads to life. Very few are going to find it. But what is that path like that leads to destruction? Very wide, it's very crooked, full of potholes, right? We need to choose the way that leads to life. Even though it's a small way, it's a small gate, it's a narrow way. And although, and even though few are going to find it, we should not be deterred from that path. Turn over to uh, verse 15. We'll end uh, here with verses 15 through 18. Luke chapter 3. It says, the people were waiting expectantly, and they were all wondering in their hearts if John 
might possibly be the Messiah. Not only was he a good orator, he was a very pop, became a very popular figure. There were many who started thinking, oh, is he the Messiah? And John is, wants to be very clear that he is not. First century expectations regarding the Jewish Messiah um, was that he would be a, a, a military king, like we said before. Um, and it, this, these ideas varied greatly among the Jews as to what type of leader the Messiah would be. Some Jews expected that uh, conqueror type of leader who would free the people from uh, foreign oppression. Others anticipated the Messiah would come in the form of a prophet. Maybe that he would come in the form of Elijah or maybe in the form of Moses. The title Christ is equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. Um, the title Christ in the Greek is equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah, both terms meaning anointed one. Both Romans and Jewish religious leaders considered zealous messianic expectations to be dangerous. Now, it's also well known uh, through historical account, during the, this time period when this is written, there were multiple radical groups uh, people who, who wanted to overthrow the government, who were very zealous to overthrow. And how, how would this, the Messiah's coming and, and seeing this figure like John being a very zealous and outspoken, boisterous type of person, how would that play into some of these zealot-type groups that were popping up during this time? What could that potentially cause? Yeah, yeah, riots and the, you know, the government thinking, that, oh, these people are getting to be a little wild, they're getting too big, and thinking that they're going to try to physically overthrow the government. And so John coming, saying, I'm preparing the way for the Messiah, and he's this kind of crazy-looking figure that's out in the wilderness and loud preacher, and people are, the crowds are going, they're flocking to him. This is probably making the Roman government a little bit nervous, even the, the Jewish governor is probably getting a little bit nervous because none of them want to want to have a, a riot on their hands. Because what's going to happen if word gets back to Caesar that there's some unrest and crazy things going on in their area? They're all going to off like the queen of heart off with your head. <laughs> They're all going to lose their jobs, right? So the uh, religious zealots at the time frequently attracted violent followers. The expectation of the crowd before John was not one of mild interest. The crowd had a deep curiosity regarding the possible presence of the Messiah. Determining whether John was the promised Messiah was the central concern of the crowd. And by the time of his public ministry, he had a big following of disciples. But John denied that he was the long-awaited Messiah. He answers him here at verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So he answers the crowd directly. He says, no, I'm not the one. I'm, I'm preparing the way for this coming Messiah. And as we talked about before, his baptism was temporary, uh, merely preparing people for baptism that would occur by one more powerful than him. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and it was a sign that they should believe in the one coming after John. That's from 
Acts chapter 19, verse 4. The ancient roads in the far reaches of the Roman Empire were made of dirt. And um, knowing that, knowing the type of shoes that they would wear, uh, what was, what's going to happen? What's going to be the daily need as far as their feet are concerned? Yeah, yeah, they're going to get nasty. You know, who knows what's on the road? I mean, think about all, all the carts and the horses and all the animals that, they're, that are going back and forth. And here they've got these shoes that are not closed and all this nasty stuff is getting on their feet. And so there, it, it wasn't a uh, common thing for people to take the sandals off of someone else's feet. And some of the, one commentator I, wrote said, I read said that the, uh, the servants oftentimes would refuse to even take sandals off of the master's feet because of how nasty they would be. So that puts a little bit different perspective as to what happened during the Last Supper, doesn't it? Because what do we see? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, this, this almighty creator of the universe, incarnate, what does he do? Yeah, he steps down or stoops down and washes their feet taking on the humbling uh, servant-type mindset. So let's turn over there. Let's read from John chapter 13. Because John, even, John says, this is the one who, is whose sandals I'm not even worthy of untying. John 13, verses 12 through 15. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and, I, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This amazing picture, isn't it? We think about how humble Christ was. So I, I like that Philippians chapter 2 chapter of how it talks about the humility of Christ and Him coming from heaven to the earth. So without Christ's humility, I don't think we would have any hope of salvation. If He, if he, didn't, if he wasn't humble, to the point to where he was willing to come to earth not only as a baby, but then to take on a servant leader type of role and, and show, display that type of leadership. We, we would not have what we have without his humility. John does not consider himself to be worthy to untie the sandals of the coming Christ, and he considered himself too lowly for the honor of even this task for the Christ. It says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, we know that John promised uh, that the advocate, the Holy Spirit, would come. And when did that happen for the, the apostles? Yes, on the day of Pentecost, uh, we see the, the, the tongues like a fire coming into the room and they, 
they hover over them and they're able to speak miraculously, able to speak in other languages and the people there hear them. Um, the fulfillment of that promise happened at that time. And then this uh, baptism of fire has always caused some controversy. Uh, there are religious groups that try to claim this is talking about some type of spiritual baptism that occurs for every Christian. Uh, but there's only one faith, one Lord, one baptism, as Ephesians tells us. So there can only be one type of baptism for the New Testament age, and that's baptism by immersion into Christ. So what is this baptism of fire? What's this a reference to? More than likely. Yeah, more than likely it's just a reference to the judgment, impending judgment, um, because he, he said, what he says in the next, very next verse, and Luke often refers to fire as a tool of divine punishment uh, throughout his gospel. And um, if we read verse 17, it makes more sense that this baptism of fire is talking about some type of judgment or discipline. Says his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with a, with unquenchable fire. So this winnowing fork is a, a shovel-like tool, kind of like a big pitchfork, where they would take the grain, the harvested grain, and they would throw it in the air, and the chaff would float away in the wind, and then what's left on the threshing floor? The grain, the grain heads and then they're able to gather it up or grind it, and then the chaff is gathered separately, and it's burned because it's worthless at that point. And so John's audience was warned that the coming of Christ would remove, remove the impurity. This is another, reason, another thing um, about repentance. is it, It's turning our hearts towards what's right and what's pure. And Christ is going to remove the impurity from among the people and with fire, which is uh, metaphorically speaking, that he would sanctify the people of God. He would provide a final judgment to those who turn their backs on him. In verse 18, with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. So quite a man, quite a, an individual, proclaiming the way of the Lord. Yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it too, thinking through what the purpose of the Old Testament prophets were and their their foreshadow of what's going to come. And then John's kind of that in-between person that it's here. You better get yourself ready. Things are going to happen that are very significant. And so John is proclaiming this good news. To the people, he be uh, he was the forerunner of Christ and the prophet to the people. Jesus' followers are called to follow him and to proclaim the good news of his salvation. And in this sense, all believers prepare the world for the way of the Lord. So, in a way, we too can have the same kind of role that John did, pointing people to Christ. And the importance of following him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, for uh, this lesson, a reminder to uh, make our crooked path straight, that uh, the way that you would want us to live is a, a narrow way, but it's
the right way. And we pray, Father, for wisdom, for guidance from your word uh, to be able uh, to follow you in the way that you want us to. Be with the rest of our day and our service this morning. Um, May what we do glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.